You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and uh, through verse 22 is where I want to start this morning. Matthew 4, verse 18 through verse 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, speaking of Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And then immediately, verse 22, it says, They left the boat and their father, and they followed after Jesus. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you so much that you are still in the business of transforming lives and calling disciples to follow you. And I thank you for just the great picture of that that we got to see today through the baptism of these four individuals who all have incredibly different backgrounds and stories, and yet they all center with you being the hero. I know there are people in here today who are sitting in the same place I once was and these others who were baptized who maybe they're on the fringes, but they're looking for something more. And I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you will take your word and that you will drive it into our hearts and call us deeper into a relationship with you where we confess this morning true life is found. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, one of the greatest uh, moments in my life as a teenager was whenever Evan Elmore uh, came up to me as a ninth grader and asked me to begin to hang out with him and his friends. Now, um, there's Evan. Yeah, uh, Evan was the most popular kid in our school. Krista, I used to be Hutchinson, now is Hudson, which Maddie, I believe you know quite well. Have you ever seen that picture before? Never have. Okay, all right. Yeah, so um, they were our class favorites. Evan, as you can see, good-looking guy, definitely the most popular kid in ninth grade. Me, on the other hand, um, well... Uh, <laughs> Uh, just for those of you who are in school, kids, you want to be cool, make sure your glasses are not bigger than your biceps, okay? And so <laughs> mine certainly were. So you can imagine, right, whenever Evan Elmore came and asked me to hang out with him and his friends, I was ecstatic. And so I was like sitting at a lunch table by myself and he said, hey, we want you to come hang out with us. And so I went to them and I'm like talking to the guys at the lunch table and I'm like, hey, my name's Jared and you're all going to be my best friends, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, whatever. And so like, you know, but no. Nonetheless, like eventually over time, I really did become good friends with Evan and with these other guys. In fact, we became so close, uh, people called us the posse. And so we had uh, matching t-shirts made. We had decals we put on our truck that said the posse. I mean, we were together all the time. We ate together. uh, We played together. We worked together. I mean, we did all things together. We went to homecoming and prom together, which there's a picture of us as we got older. Yes, those are matching Hawaiian shirts, and it's so funny. It's like, which one of these is not like the other? You got Doctor's Kid, most popular, then the one best looking, and then me, 130 pounds, uh, dripping wet. And so there we are, about to be going to homecoming together. We all had dates. I'm not sure why we were getting our pictures just with us without our dates. But, and then there we are. That's me in the front and our prom picture, and that's Evan on the side who's like wearing that white, like ghost-looking uh, tuxedo. And so, man, we hung out all the time. Like, we dreamed together. We laughed together. We cried together. Uh, we really thought we would be together forever, right? Like buddy bands and all. 
But eventually, right, we all went to different colleges, life got in the way, we got married, we had kids, and now we're obviously not near as close. And I'm guessing for the majority of you in here, it's a story fairly similar. You probably don't hang out with the people that you ran around with in high school. But what I want you to consider this morning is that all of us had a posse, so to speak. We all had a group of people that we hung out with, guys, girls, whatever, and and no one had to tell you that you needed to connect in relationships. I mean, just naturally from grade school on, right, you would seek to connect with other guys or other girls. And if you didn't get connected, you at least long to be connected to others. And you see, the reason why that is, is because what the scripture tells us is that God created us for relationships. We're actually hardwired to be connected to other human beings. In fact, we've read this verse many times in talking about relationships. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says that when God created mankind, he said, let us make man in our image. Whenever we read that, we say, well, who is the us? Is it angels? No. He says, let us make man in our image. We are made in the image of God. And so when God says, let us, he's speaking of himself, the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been uh, intertwined in this perfect relationship from eternity past. And so when God creates us, he says, if you're going to image me, if you're going to mirror me to the world because I'm a relational God, I'm going to create you as a relational people. So he creates Adam. He says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. He creates a woman. He says, come together, multiply, fill the earth with more humans who live in relationship with each other. What that means then is everybody in here, no matter who you are or where you come from, whether you're extroverted or introverted, black or white, young or older, um, uh, rich or poor, we are not created to live in isolation. We are created to live in relationship with one another. That is why Richard Plass, who is a mentor to me and Adam, in fact, I I met with him this past week, and uh, here's what he says in his book, The Relational Soul. It says, at the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with the relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist well without connection and communion with another. The truth is, if you want to be healthy emotionally, if you want to be emotionally healthy, if you want to be spiritually healthy, if you even want to be physically healthy, you must live connected to other human beings. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently, the Aspen Ideas podcast, and a, a man on there by the name of Dan Butner, him and his team, they studied the blue zones throughout the world, and the blue zones are the places where, where people groups are living the longest. And here's what he discovered. Uh, he basically went to look and see, like, what do all these blue groups have in common? And he, what he discovered was the people who live the longest tend to have the relationships that are the deepest. So even scientific research is now basically telling us what the Bible's telling us, that if you want a life well lived, you cannot live it in isolation. You must live in community. The problem is, over the last 100 years, we've seen a decline in community in the United States of America. Um, and there are several reasons for why that is. I just want to list uh, a few of, I think, probably the more uh, prominent reasons for why we've seen a decline in community. The first one, I would say, is because we've seen an increase in mobility. Um, it was not actually um, that uncommon back in the early 1900s, even to the mid-1900s. Uh, people just didn't move around a lot. Um, if, if you wanted to know, like, why did someone attend a church that they attended, it was because it was the building that was closest to their house. And they would stay in their house and in their home for long periods of time. But now, 
right? It is not uncommon at all for us to move around and switch houses, switch churches, switch communities. Um, in fact, a recent statistic that I read said that, that every year tens of millions of people in the U- U.S. relocate from one residence to another. And also the same data show that the average American is now moving once every five years. Or in the case of me and my wife, we have moved twice in the past five years. So moving itself, right, it's not sinful, but what we need to understand is when we move, because of this increased mobility, community becomes harder, right? You can't really develop deep relationships with your neighbors, or if you switch churches a lot and hop around trying to find the place with the best music or whatever else, you can't really develop deep community. Zach Esquine says, um, wherever we are, it is like we are itching to leave. We all have somewhere we are supposed to be, but where we are is never that place, Right? So we're always on the move. That's one of the reasons we see a decline in community. The second reason is because I would say we have seen a lot of modern conveniences in the United States that have aided in the decline of community. Um, back in the early 1900s, if you wanted to get relief from the heat in the evening, rather than sitting inside your home where like the heat was trapped in, you would go outside. You would go on your front porch or underneath the shade where you could feel the breeze and you would see people who were also outside trying to get relief from the heat. But eventually, uh, this bad boy was created, right? The home air conditioner. Look how happy that woman is. She's like, I never have to go be around my neighbors again. Hallelujah, right? It's like I can just stay inside where it's nice and cool, right? And so this definitely helped in the decline of community. Rather than people being outside, socializing, they all just stayed indoors. Um, and then eventually, uh, we see there was another invention that aided in the decline of community. And uh, it's this bad boy, the garage. At one time, we didn't have attached garages with garage doors, but now what happens? And you know this is true. Now you can leave work, go home, pull into your little back cave, and hit the button before you ever get out of the car so you can be in a neighborhood for years and never have to wave at any of your neighbors, right? And so, um, yeah, the, the garage definitely aided in the decline of the community. And then does anybody remember this bad boy right here? Anybody remember this? The answer machine. Right? Now listen, some of you who are under 30, this is going to strike you as odd, but used to, there was a day where if you wanted to know who was calling you, you know what you had to do? You actually had to pick up the phone and talk to the person, right? And if you didn't want to talk to them, it's tough because you're home and now you're on the phone with them, right? But the answer machine was great, right? It was before we had caller ID and cell phones and all that. And, and basically what, what you did with the answer machine is um, you, if you were home and you were afraid someone was calling you who you didn't want to talk to, you let the answer machine get it, and then you find out who was calling you. And if you wanted to talk to them, then you'd cut the answer machine off and be like, oh, sorry, we're home. I was outside. just got to the, you know, to the phone or whatever, right? Or if you didn't want to talk, you just... Never called them back, right? So again, the answer machine helped in the decline of community. And then also, as we've seen all these modern conveniences come about, eventually we've seen this increase in the uh, ability to be able to, to get entertainment in all these different forms. Um, kids, I know this is going to be shocking to you, but whenever I was a child, which was in the 80s, by the way, it wasn't that long ago, um, in the 80s, when I was a child, we had one TV. And not a flat screen. I mean, this thing was like uh, like a 12-inch screen, weighed like 1,900 pounds. You may remember those like huge box TVs. I mean, it took seven guys to move it from one corner of the, the living room to the other. And so we had that. And because we're not like Jason Wolfenberger, me and my brother didn't like uh, soap operas. Uh, we didn't want to watch Days of Our Lives or we didn't want to watch KIT. You know what we had to do for entertainment as a kid? We went outside. And you know what we played with? People. It's crazy, isn't it, to think about? Like, we actually played with other kids. Now, if kids want entertainment, what do they do? Right? 
And it's so funny, my daughter was at one of her friend's house this past week, and there were several of them in the room, and it should have been really loud, but it was really quiet, and I walked in there to see what was going on. You know what they were doing? They were all huddled around this little bitty screen, like just looking at it, right? So they're together in a room, but they're not even like socializing. That's why Sherry Turkle in her book, Alone Together, says that we are now a generation that expects more from technology than we do from people. Uh, Modern inconveniences is certainly aided in the decline of community. One more, I would say also the rise of social media. And I know that we all love social media. I'm not going to tell you to delete your apps. I know like you love the feeling of posting that selfie and people liking it and being like, yeah, I do look good, don't I? You know, or like people like, yeah, my kids are awesome. I am an amazing parent. I know that because I got 60 likes just on that one picture of me like playing a board game with them. So I'm awesome. You know, it's like, I know that's all great. But here's what social media did to help aid the decline of communities. It basically told us that we can have a thousand one-inch deep relationships where we don't really know anybody else and they don't know us and that's somehow going to be enough. The problem is every statistic out there right now is saying that we are a generation that is more connected than ever before, but we are also lonelier than any other generation before. And the reason that is is because what we are discovering is that connectivity is not the same as community. Connectivity can entertain you, but only community, the Bible says, has the power to change you. And that is why Jesus, whenever he stepped on the scene, if you look back at our text in Matthew chapter 4, he could have done this any way he wanted. And if you notice, he didn't just call a disciple, he called disciples. He didn't just say, I'm going to call one guy to follow me on Monday and one guy on Tuesday and one on Wednesday and Thursday. He said, no, I'm going to pull together this diverse group of people and you are going to center your lives around me. And so he calls these very good Jewish boys, right? Peter and Andrew and James and John. But then he doesn't stop there. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen for you. After he calls these good Jewish, you know, law-abiding citizens... He goes to another person, Matthew 9, verse 9. It says that Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and Matthew rose and followed him. Now, Matthew was also a Jew, but Matthew worked for the Roman government. Tax collectors, everybody hated them back then because literally they worked for the government to oppress the oppressed, to oppress the Jews. And so Jesus calls these good Jews, and then he calls a guy who oppresses the Jews all to be a part of the same community. And then he doesn't just stop there. If you look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And Jesus called his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles were these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and then Simon, the zealot. Does anybody know what a zealot was back in these days? A zealot, literally, they were this violent, insurgent sect of Jewish people who basically wanted to take down the Roman government using guerrilla tactics. And so what they would do is some of them would carry a dagger in their cloak, try to sneak up behind a Roman soldier, slit their throat, and then like slide back into the crowd. So can you imagine Matthew, who works for the Roman government, Simon the Zealot, who's trying to kill the Roman government, in the same Bible study? I mean, that would literally be like having, like, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in your missional community. I mean, do you think that there's going to be some tension? Yeah. Do you think every now and then, like, even, like, politics is going to come up and they're going to disagree? Yeah. Yeah, of course they will. 
right? Like they are going to be all, then they have Judas who's this cold and calculated money hungry guy. I mean, clearly these first disciples, I mean, they were very diverse. They clearly were, uh, you know, not on a always uh, experience life going well with one another. And yet Jesus calls them together. I think it's important that we get this today because some of us, we treat community like we do a dating service. You know, when it comes to a dating service, you know, it's this whole idea of like, well, I don't want someone too tall because that could make me feel insecure or someone that's too short because that can make me feel like a Neanderthal. Neanderthal. Is that right? Okay, yeah, it can make me feel like one of those, right? Right? I don't want someone that works this kind of job. I also don't want someone that works that kind of job. I don't want someone this color hair. I want that color. We do the same thing when it comes to community. Sometimes we're like, you know what? I don't want an MC with old people, uh, but I also don't want them with new people because, or, or, or new Christians because they're immature. But old people, right, they're boring. So I don't want that, right? I, I, I want an MC that has a bunch of kids, but not those kind of kids, these kind of kids, this age group, right? Like we just begin to kind of go through and say, I want my perfect little community where everybody basically looks just like me. But that's not at all the kind of community that we see Jesus building, right? Jesus says, when I come, I want to build not just a disciple, but disciples around me. And unlike the friendships that we have in high school, he doesn't want them all wearing Hawaiian shirts. He doesn't want them all looking exactly the same, right? He is picking people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different personalities, different political agendas. I mean, you have Peter, who is an extrovert. You have Thomas, right, who is an introvert. You have James and John, who were called the Sons of Thunder, which is an awesome wrestling tag team name, but not a nickname that you want. When you're in the Bible days. I mean, James and John literally had such a, an anger issue. I mean, there's a point where they're with Jesus. They see a city that's not repenting. And they're like, Jesus, we should burn this mother down. Like, we should, like, call fire from heaven and destroy it. And what does Jesus basically say? He looks and he's like, um, I'm pretty sure you need to go back and, and look at your Sermon on the mountain notes again. Right? <laughs> and just calm down and set a couple plays out. I mean, guys, I'm not making this up. Like, this is the kind of community that we see rallied around Jesus, a group of incredibly diverse people, but yet because they come together and they rally around Jesus, what do we see happen? Eventually they become like Jesus and they go on to do what Jesus did. And as a result, as they, as they do this in community through the power of the Spirit, they turn the world upside down for the glory of God. The reason I share all that is just to say the same is true when it comes to you and I. If we are truly going to experience the life as disciples of Jesus that God has called us to experience, we cannot do it apart from one another. We must learn to live within a diverse community that's not centered around preference, but is centered around a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is because community is essential to our discipleship, is I just want to share quickly four things that we need to remember if we are going to experience this type of healthy community today in a culture that is completely against community. And the first thing I would say we need to remember is this, is if you are a disciple to Jesus, community is non-optional. Community is non-optional for a disciple to Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, verse 19 through 21, Jesus is with a group of people, and his mom and his brothers are trying to get to him. So just imagine, like, Jesus is in here, and for whatever reason, like, his mom and brothers can't get in here because the crowd's so big. Someone comes up to Jesus, and they're like, hey, your mom, your family's outside, Jesus. And here's what he says, verse 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. Verse 20. And Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, um, actually, my mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God 
and do it. In other words, Jesus just redefined family. He said a family is not just biological, but a family is people who rally around Jesus, who trust in his life, death, and resurrection. Truly, when you do this, you go from being an enemy of God to being a beloved child of God. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And ladies, I've said this before, don't get too caught up on the sons. The only reason it says sons and not sons and daughters is because in this culture, if you were a daughter, you got jack squat when your dad passed away. When all of the sons. What this is just saying is now you're all sons, so to speak. And the fact that you all receive the full inheritance that belongs to Jesus, that now belongs to you no matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done if you're trusting in Christ. You are a child of God. And listen, guys, if you are children of God, and if I'm a child of God, what does that make you and me? Yeah, brothers, sisters, it makes us family. Literally, it makes us family. And if that's true, what that means then is I have a responsibility to God the Father, but I also have a responsibility to you. I mean, think about it like this. My son Moses was born on December 26th. The day he was born, he became a son to me, but he became a brother to Nora and Wyatt. That means he has a responsibility to me as my son, but he also has a responsibility to them as one of their siblings. The same is true in our discipleship to Jesus. When you choose to follow Jesus, you are saved into a relationship with Christ, and you are also saved into this community, into the family of God. And therefore, in our discipleship, community is non-optional. Um, Ronald Rohauser says it like this. Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and all the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be individualistic quest where we pursue God outside of community faith in the church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says that he or she loves the invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with the visible person on earth, right, right in front of him, that person is a liar since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if, she, if he or she cannot love a person who can be seen. And he's taking that from 1 John, by the way. Point is just this. Christian community is essential in your discipleship to Jesus. It is non-optional. It is non-optional. Second thing we need to remember is this. If we're going to have a healthy community, we need to realize that community is the context to where we are transformed. Pete Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, says that all of us have a shadow side. In other words, what he says is all of you, whether you realize it or not, you have a part of you that's broken, that is flawed, and it often takes other people to see it in you because you cannot see it in yourself. Therefore, you need to be around other people who love you enough to speak the truth in love so that you can see areas where you're not like Jesus so that you can get to a place where you can become more like Jesus. Uh, this happened for me a couple weeks ago. Um, Adam and I have been friends for a long time, and therefore he can pick up things in me that I often don't pick up in myself first. And so um, I walked into something sweet to meet him for a meeting, which, by the way, I did not get a cupcake. For those of you who are judging me right now, thinking, I think I'm supposed to have sugar, Jared. Did not eat a cupcake. Walk in, meet with him. We get talking, and he's like, hey, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm cool. And he's like, well, you feel kind of distant or like kind of heavy. And I was like, well, now that I think about it, I was like, I mean, my back's been hurting me all day. And I said, um, He's like, okay, and why is that bothering you? I said, like, well, it bothers me because honestly, it's kind of messed up my sermon prep today because all I was thinking about is, why am I back? Why is it stinking? I'm 33. Why is it hurting? I was frustrated in the middle of my sermon prep, and therefore, I didn't get to prepare for my sermon like I thought I should have, and that really frustrates me and makes me anxious because I got to preach on Sunday, and if I preach a bad sermon, someone might leave the church. 
So while that's going on in my mind, I just like vomited it out, whatever. He was like, you okay? And like a good friend in that moment, like he, he, he doesn't try to just fix me. And this is a good like just counseling technique, by the way. I don't know if you notice this, but counselors who make the most money just ask questions. And then like you answer it and you're like, you're amazing. And they're like, I didn't say a word. And so like, that's what Adam is, is good at. And so he was just like, well, what do you think God might be trying to say to you in that moment? And I was able to just be like, well, man, here's the truth. And I began to just speak the gospel. And it was life-giving. And it was something that actually helped me deal with sin that I didn't even detect within me and couldn't have if he would not seen it in me first and then brought it up for me to deal with. And this doesn't just happen among pastors. This happens in missional communities. I mean, even in our own missional community, um, I asked Jordan, I don't know if she's here today, I asked Jordan and I asked Chris Melton if I could use this. And so uh, don't freak out and think, like, if you get my MC, I'm going to use your stories and not ask you first. And so... Um, a couple of weeks ago, Russell and Jordan, are they, are y'all in here? Okay, I see. Okay, Russell, can you go to the front, please? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, would you tell this story, please? Um, Russell and, and Jordan had, had gotten a fight because Jordan thought that, or Russell thought that Jordan was going to make them late for the 9.30 for our Sunday gathering. So, I don't, anybody ever done that before? Don't raise your hand. But, like, they were fighting, and uh, they came here, and of course, you know how it is. You get here, and you're like, hey, God bless you. Yeah, we're awesome. And you're like kicking your spouse behind you, you know. It's like, I'm going to kill you when we get home. And so, like, you know, they're, they're arguing. They put on their happy face, but then it's all over. Praise you, Lord. They get back in the car, and they start arguing again. Right? Like, to pick up now, back, back to your program, right? And so, like, they get back in the car. And they begin to argue, and um, it's not funny. It's kind of funny looking back at it because Jordan's, like, confessing this stuff. But, but she begins to cry, right? And so um, she begins to get upset, and she's like, God, you know. And so, like, they, they pull up at our MC meal uh, in the afternoon at my house. Russell walks in with all the food. I'm like, hey, where's Jordan? He's like, I'm a jerk. I made her cry. Like, I don't know. It's probably all my fault. And uh, he's like, your wife's out there trying to talk to her right now. And so, like, Megan goes out there and talks to her. And, and uh, you know, the Megan comes back in, but Jordan's still out in the car. And so, like, I was like, all right, well, let's send more women out there. And so, I was like, Carrie, you're up. And so, like, Carrie heads out there with some other girls, like, like four at this time. So, it's like a whole posse, like, coming around her, you know. And Jordan's telling the story this past Sunday. And she said, you know, when I saw all these other ladies come out, my exact thought was, you have got to be kidding me. And Carrie said, yeah, because literally when I got in the car, you said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so, and Jordan was like, you know, she's laughing about it. She said, because at the time... I thought, you know, there could be a chance that maybe I am in the wrong on this. But I don't want anybody to tell me. You know, it's like, I just want to sit here and kind of be bothered about this. But she said, you know what? I knew I needed someone to come and peer into my life. I knew that I needed someone else to come and love me in spite of all of that and, and just to help me work through that. And they did, right? And, and, and they, you know, by God's grace, they're here today. And so, um, and they're reconciled and, and doing well. And so, you know, Jordan was sharing that in, in our MC mail last week. And then Chris Melton began to, to open up and she began to, to, to cry and say, you know what? Like in this, this moment of transparency, let me just tell you, like I've been feeling distant from God and I don't think it's on him it's on me and I just feel a lot of guilt over things and I feel like maybe God's upset with me on that and in that moment Matt Wesley was just like hey sister I just want to share a word that the Holy Spirit wants for you and just speaks the gospel in a beautiful way to Chris and she begins to cry that be so encouraged and anyways I'm just saying all of that happened within the context of community all of this stuff right Chris isn't breaking down crying no she's good she's not breaking down crying here on Sunday mornings right and like hey hang on in talk about stuff in my life Right? We don't see that from Jordan Russell. We don't see that from any of you guys. Right? Look at us. We're beautiful, right? We're all doing great. We're happy. Some of us are taking notes. But you get into community, that stuff gets exposed. 
And we're able to be encouraged with the gospel, which then transform us. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. To the church, we are to speak the truth in love so that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body what? Grow so that it builds itself up in love. Some of you, I know that you want to avoid community because you have been hurt deeply by past relationships. And you just need to know the only way you can get healing from those past relationships is by stepping into new relationships. And to allow yourself to be ministered to through community. Two more things quickly. We need to remember if we are going to develop healthy community within our church is we need to realize community, like I'm talking about, takes time and intentionality to develop. We look at Acts 2 and we're like, God, like, why can't my missional community be like the early church? Well, do you realize the early church was led by a group of disciples who were together every second of every day the previous three years? I mean, do you realize how much time and work went into that community, them being together? So let me just encourage you. If you're here and you're not in a missional community, you're like, okay, I'm going to try this. Please don't go like to a meal once or twice a Sunday for three months and be like, okay, we weren't family. This is bogus. I'm out. It takes time and intentionality to develop deep community. And then fourth and finally, what I would just say is keep in mind, and I better get an amen from those of you that are in community, that community is very messy. Okay? Community is messy. When we look in Acts 2, right again, we're like, oh, I want a church like that. Well, have you ever read like three chapters later in Acts 5? A couple literally, this is in the Bible, check it yourself. A couple in this awesome early church lies about how much they make on some property they sold so they don't have to give as much to the church and God kills them for it. You, wanna, you want the early church? Because we can do that. I mean, just imagine me up here preaching. All right? Time out! Somebody apparently is lying about how much they're making and they did not tithe as they should. Ushers, they're dead. Please, take them to the back. Right? Like... But oh, community, like it's just surreal. We want the early church. Listen, even the early church in its purest form still was incredibly messy. It was. And we're messy. I mean, just within the past couple months, I'm thinking about people in our church. We have a woman who right now cannot have children. A man who recently lost his job, a child who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, a couple that is considering divorce, a family that is under extreme financial... I mean, this is just a handful of scenarios that are real life within community right now. And you just need to go into community realizing that. All community is messy because all people are messy. We all have issues that we are trying to work through. And if you don't realize that, you're going to think that there's some perfect group out there that's going to be a perfect fit, that's going to give you a perfect life. That is a pipe dream. It does not exist. Jean Venner, who is a philosopher and a theologian, says this, Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at least the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. Then comes the letdown. You ever been there? The greater their idolization of community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through the second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people. Each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are, 
And they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. If we will stay committed, we will grow towards something more beautiful. We will be conformed more in the image of Jesus. That's the goal of community. And just this past week, we got a chance to see this. We were celebrating Carrie's 30th birthday. And so um, me and, and my wife and kids and the Jacksons have been good friends with the Breckenridges for a long time. And so we all kind of have this, this sense of community amongst us. And so we're, we're hanging out and eating pizza. And it's insane in their house, by the way, because they've got three kids. The Jacksons have three kids. We have three kids, right? So, I mean, there's like toys everywhere. Like there's stuff being drawn on that doesn't need to be drawn on. It is, it's just chaotic. And then all of a sudden we're doing our thing and, and Lucy Blue, their daughter, just begins to shrill. She begins to cry. And Adam's like, I've never heard that cry before. And, and Carrie goes down the hall, and there is their daughter Lucy bleeding from the nose. And so Carrie's like, oh, what happened? And she's trying to talk to her. So she gives Lucy to Adam, gets her a cloth. Adam puts it on her, on her nose. But then Carrie notices like her nose is starting to swell up. And she's like, golly, like, I don't know if this is broken. So now I need to go to the emergency room and check this out. So I can get a peace of mind and make sure she's okay and we do what we need to be doing. So like, she's trying to find her coat. We're trying to get the kids to clean up. The kitchen's a wreck. We're trying to get that cleaned up. And it, I mean, it's just mass chaos. And in that moment, I go to Nora my five-year-old daughter, and Lucy's one of her good friends are in class together. And I said, hey, uh, Nora, we need to go. Your, 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 your friend is hurt. We need to go pray for her. And so we go in there, and I was about to pray for Lucy. And I was like, actually, babe, do you want to pray for her since she's your friend? And she said, yeah, Dad, I do. And so she just began to pray for her right there. She said, God, would you just heal Lucy? And would you comfort her? And she begins to pray as a five-year-old could pray for her friend Lucy. And I just thought about that this past week, and I thought, you know, if we were these people that were just like, we've got to have these perfectly tidy little compartmentalized lives and no mess, think about that beautiful moment that we would miss out on. Where my daughter literally is in that moment able to become more like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. And listen, the same is true in all of community. If we try to just stay outside the mess, like let's just all look perfect and neat and clean, I'm telling you, we will not grow towards something more beautiful. We will not become the men and the women that God has created us to be. And therefore, what I want to encourage you to do with that in mind as we end this morning, if you are not in a missional community, I say it often, please get in a missional community. Try it out. Try it out. Step out of the shadows. Every missional community is imperfect, right? Again, they're all messy, but they're beautiful, right? Get into a missional community. Find a group. And basically, if you're like, what is a missional community? It's just a group of, of 10 to 15 to 20 to 25 people that are just trying to, to live and love like Christ right? Together. And so we eat a meal once a week together because we're family. Healthy families should eat meals together. So we eat a meal together. We serve each other. I mean, even this, this, this afternoon, Brian and Adam's coming to help me shovel dirt, uh, right? Okay. And so, <laughs> and so can't get out of it now. So, and so, uh, and so we serve each other. We serve people in the city who are less fortunate, right? I mean, we just learn how to live and practice the way of Jesus together. And if you're here and you're just like, man, that all sounds great, but you just don't know how messy I am and how flawed I am. And, and, and man, if people just really knew me, then they wouldn't really love me. And how I parent is, I know I'm not a great parent, or I know I'm not a great spouse, or I know I don't know any scripture. And oh, my schedule's insane. And listen, if that's you, let me just end with an encouragement this morning from 2 Samuel 9.13. In 2 Samuel 9.13, there's this obscure little character by the name of Mephibosheth. If anybody's pregnant with a kid, there's you a baby name option. And Mephibosheth was a, uh, when he was a boy, he was dropped and it gave him these flawed feet that made him an outcast among his people. Nobody wanted to be around him. But King David took an interest in him and said, you know what? I know you're flawed. I know you don't have it all together, but I'm going to invite you into my palace to eat around the king's table. 
It's just this beautiful picture, right? Where, I mean, you just see him underneath this table and you can't even see his feet anymore. Just him, you know, and he's eating all this great food. And there's this great verse in 2 Samuel 9, 13, where it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. I wanted to share that just to say this. Because we are born with a sin nature, do you realize every single person in here, spiritually speaking, are born with flawed feet? And if you have physically flawed, flawed feet, you know, like, you want to cover those suckers up, right? The same is true spiritually. So many of us are trying to cover up all of our flaws and all of our brokenness. We don't want anybody really to know, man, if you just knew what was going on in my life. Some of us, we have things that we don't want other people to know about, things that we're ashamed of. Listen, King Jesus knows every single flaw, every single bump, every single bruise, every single crack. He knows every single flaw. And you know what he says to you? Come eat around my table. Come and feast and drink and never thirst again and be fulfilled. But Jesus, you don't know. I, I don't. I know. I, I know you're more flawed than even you know. And I don't care. Come and eat at my table. Guys, if you believe that, Christian, listen, if you believe that, it should do two things. One, it should humble you. You should stop looking down at other people because of their junk, because we're all just as messed up. Stop condescendingly looking down at other people for their sin. Nothing would be okay with it, but stop shaking your finger at them. It should humble us to say, man, I've got flawed feet. I've got issues. I've got skeletons in my closet. And then it should also give us great confidence because we can say, you know what? Even if you don't like me, the king of the universe says I can eat at his table all day long. If you believe that, then and only then will you be able to hop into community, be loved and love the way King Jesus has loved you.